to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin declaring martial law in the four regions that recently voted to join Russia. Also going to be talking about uh, Virginia Governor Yunkin and uh, his approaches to uh, uh, an uptick in violent crime, which uh, in his mind means a need for more policing. Also going to be touching on the resignation of British Prime Minister Liz Truss and much much more. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off, we are very happy to be joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mark. And uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has declared martial law, I believe set to uh, take effect today, in the four Ukraine regions that uh, uh, recently voted to formally become uh, a part of Russia. And, uh, of course, this is all part and parcel of the uh, escalating uh, uh, war in Ukraine. And uh, during some televised remarks, Putin said, quote, we are working to solve very difficult large-scale task to ensure Russia's security and safe future to protect our people. Those who are on the front lines are undergoing training at firing ranges and training centers should feel our support and know that they have our big, great country and unified people behind their back. And Mark, I was hoping you could just sort of explain uh, just what this uh, martial law uh, situation means and how it factors into the broader context of uh, the Ukraine conflict. Sure. Um, I, I think uh, first off the bat, it's this is a legalistic change, but it's not actually changing the conditions in these four regions because they were all already under martial law. Um, uh, by the local authorities, uh, they've been under martial law for months now uh, because they are a conflict zone. Um, and I mean, this is usually what happens in war within a, a, a conflict zone. Uh, the government needs uh, more security, law enforcement power. So really what this is doing is this is just taking an already pre-existing condition and giving a legal basis for it under Russia law. Now that the four uh, former territories of Ukraine are considered part of Russia following the referendums that were held there. Um, and in fact, the um, territories of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk have been under martial law for eight years because they have been under assault by the Kiev regime since it seized power for eight years in their attempt to uh, extend their control of the country uh, uh, into the east. And it also should be noted that Ukraine has been under martial law the entire country uh, since February, uh, since the Russian uh, intervention started. And not only that, but actually the Kiev regime had declared martial law in the East because of their war against uh, the Donbass uh, to subjugate them to the seizure of power in Kiev. So this region, unfortunately, hasn't known anything but martial law, uh, much of it going back eight years. Right. So this is is no big sea change. But I think 
probably there's there's two I think big reasons why it's certainly it's being extended, and it's it's a, a, a major thing. I mean, uh, the, the, these are are harsh uh, conditions, restrictions uh, uh, on uh, freedoms and civil rights. Um, so um, it's in, important that there is sufficient reason for us. And the first that springs to mind is uh, the impending Kiev regime assault on Kherson. They have built up uh, a reportedly 60,000 strong attack force. Uh, much of it is um, uh, poorly or completely untrained territorial defense, which means basically jumped up conscripted civilians with guns shoved in their hands. But, I mean, it's been said in military matters that uh, um, quantity has a quality all of its own, and 60,000 is, is a lot of troops. Um, they have already been shelling uh, Herson uh, for a couple of weeks now in shaping operations, uh, and it's done significant uh, uh infrastructure damage. So Russia is uh, preparing to defend the city in urban combat if it becomes necessary. The Kiev regime hasn't broken through the defensive lines uh, that Russia has set up well outside the city in the Kherson region uh, for after several days now, but those may be more a prelude with recon in force and uh, probing attacks. Uh, so, I mean, the worst may, may certainly be yet to come. But because of that, the Russian president is trying to evacuate the civilians of Kherson, um, uh, particularly from the right bank where the majority of the fighting would be, but uh, overall out of, out of the city entirely. And in fact, um, has offered the people of Kherson that if you wish to move out of the area and you can move anywhere in Russia, um, uh, you just say where you want to go and we will provide you apartments or accommodations at the government's expense, um, which is certainly good. And it has to be said that removing civilians from an urban area when you are expecting urban combat in defense of, of an urban area is the right thing to do under the rules of war. Whereas the Kiev regime um, has done the exact opposite, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can take Amnesty International's, who has reported that the Kiev regime turned uh, has been turning every building, uh, residential buildings, hospitals, schools into um, bases and firing points. But with the civilians still inside of them, using them as human shields in many cases, uh, as Amnesty detailed, and that of course, is wrong. That is a war crime. Uh, so these um, uh, the martial law will help facilitate the evacuations from there. The other reason, uh, and, and one of the um, impending um, ways that uh, it is reported that the Kiev regime is intending to launch their attacks is to blow up the Kohovka Reservoir Dam uh, upstream in the Dnieper. Um, and that will, uh, sorry, downstream of the Dnieper, and um, that will flood the entire area, uh, including much of Harrison City, uh, complicating evacuation, compl complementing logistics and supplies, but also uh, invariably will causing uh, a high number of civilian casualties because of extreme flooding. So that is also a concern. The uh, other thing that might be considered is that there have been a lot of sabotage attacks 
by Kiev regime, covert ops behind uh, the lines uh, on infrastructure projects. But there have also been a, a series, a, a regular phenomenon of political assassinations uh, of local officials, anyone basically who has seen as working with Russia or arranging the referendums or the like. And in many cases, it has been brutal and it has also extended to their families. Uh, so those are one of the reasons why extra uh, uh, security powers uh, and preparations are are seen as as vital. This is a conflict zone, and unfortunately, it's probably not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, and I appreciate you laying out that uh, context about the reality of uh, martial law in Ukraine and in those regions. And <clears throat> what I thought was interesting was the response to this by uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken, who gave a uh, interview to George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America, who said that uh, uh, the martial law piece was the evidence of a desperation on the part of, of Vladimir Putin. He said, quote, just in the last few weeks, he's tried to mobilize more forces. He's gone through with this sham annexation of Ukrainian territory. Now, in saying that he's declaring martial law in places that he claims to have people who somehow want to be part of Russia, that speaks to his desperation. And so, of course, here, you know, two things happening, uh, uh, you know, in terms of what uh, Blinken is saying. I mean, number one, sort of uh, casting aspersions on the uh, uh, referendum uh, that took place in those territories. And then secondly, suggesting that uh, this martial law, which, as you described, Mark, isn't actually much of a sea change, is, is somehow some sign of desperation. I mean, it just feels like it's part of this consensus Consistent and uh, persistent, you know, uh, a narrative of, you know, trying to uh, paint uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government and, of course, sort of uh, this overall conflict as, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically as if, you know, the, the Kremlin is just kind of spinning out of control in terms of uh, uh, how it's handling this. I mean, from the beginning, we've been uh, told that uh, Russia has been, you know, taking this uh, serious drubbing as it pertains to the this conflict, even though, you know, effects on the ground seem to choose otherwise. And it, it's just wild to me, Mark, about how, uh, you know, the, the the West and Washington sort of uh, stick to this uh, uh, narrative. But on on one hand, I suppose it makes sense because, I mean, it's all part and parcel of sort of justifying and, and whitewashing sort of the desires of uh, the U.S. NATO axis. And uh, I mean, you know, if, if, if we know that they're already uh, prepared to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian, then it, it, you know, why would they have any issue lying to the rest of us about uh, some of these fundamental things? You know what I mean? I'd have a question for Anthony J. Blinken. If, if Russia um, continuing a pre-existing condition of martial law in two newly incorporated regions, or, or, or four when you, you count all of them total, um, uh, that are a conflict zone, if that is a sign of desperation, then what does it say for the Kiev regime that has had martial law across the entire country in effect since uh, – across the entire country of Ukraine in effect uh, since February? and. I mean, I can't help but notice. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember, you know, being a military vet that the, the U.S. when it invaded and occupied Iraq, they declared martial law too. Was was that a sign of desperation, or is that the way that uh, you know uh, uh, conflict management is usually done? Uh, 
uh, by authorities in the area. So, and I mean, of course, the U.S. is not going to recognize the referendums uh, uh, in East Ukraine, uh, in these four regions. They didn't recognize it in Crimea. And, you know, that's fair because Russia doesn't recognize the sham elections that were held by the U.S.-backed putsch uh, in, that seized power in Kiev, overthrew the government in a violent, unconstitutional putsch, and overthrew the last legitimate democratically elected uh, president in Ukraine back in 2014. Russia hasn't recognized uh, the sham elections that they've held there since. So we, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, also doesn't recognize Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, uh, independence and Russia doesn't recognize that Kosovo is separate from Serbia. They still consider it part of Serbia and doesn't recognize that the Golan Heights uh, is part of Israel because Israel has annexed it and so forth and so forth. It's all this usual double standards, you know, our glorious army, their evil hordes, you know, this this type of double standards when presenting a, a narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there was this um, other piece that uh, I wanted to touch on with the State Department saying that there's, quote, abundant evidence that uh, Russia is using Iranian uh, uh, drones in Ukraine. And uh, a State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, said uh, in a statement a little earlier this week um, that the U.S., along with France and Britain, uh, raised this issue of Iran's uh, transfer of uh, UAVs or these unmanned aerial vehicles to Russia during a U.N. Security Council meeting. Um, you know, what, what is the uh, issue here in terms of Russia uh, allegedly getting these Iranian drones here, Mark? And why is it such a concern for the State Department? Yeah, I, I don't really understand that because it's it's OK for NATO to you know, provide their entire military arsenals of NATO countries, uh, everything from uh, uh, M777 howitzers to HIMARS to uh, air defense systems uh, to, um, uh, you know, um, uh, hundreds of thousands of rounds of, of artillery of all shapes and forms, missiles, everything to Kiev. But how dare... Uh, you know, uh, someone uh, provides some military assistance to Russia because, you know, uh, it's OK when we do it, but not when you do it. But um, actually, it's not even precisely the case. Um, what the Iranian government transfer, transferred to Russia is the, um, uh, the technical know-how and the legal rights to produce uh, analogs of these drones in Russia. And that's what's actually being done. Russia has set up three factories to produce these Iranian-designed drones. Uh, in Iran, they're known as the Shahed. In Russia, they're known as the geranium, uh, a flower motive. Um, and they, they, they uh, fill the capability cap. I mean, Russia does have its own type of um, what are com commonly referred to as suicide drones. Uh, they're essentially explosives with wings. Um, uh, they already have their own forms, but the advantages of these particular drones is they're dirt cheap and they are quite effective. Uh, so they, they fill a capability gap that Russia was missing and has used to 
pretty good effect. Um, as uh, you can see, it seems that the Kiev regime has no effective means of stopping them whatsoever, uh, hence the damage to uh, the Kiev regime's uh, few remaining pieces of, of air defense and also to uh, electrical infrastructure over the last three weeks. And they're getting quite frantic uh, about it. Um, and I think that's why there's so much fury uh, coming uh, from the United States and also not just a little bit of trepidation because they see how effective these drones are um, and they realize that those same drones could be used against U.S. For occupation forces in Syria. In the Middle East, um, they could be used against Israel, you know, a U.S. ally occupying Palestine. Uh, so, uh, you know, there is, uh, uh, I think, fear driving this. And I, I think what's really driving uh, the U.S. response is a sense of desperation. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you see that uh, desperation playing into uh, the moment that we're in as it pertains to the war in Ukraine, Mark, as uh, things are uh, uh, clearly escalating in uh, uh, a number of ways and uh, negotiations uh, don't seem terribly imminent at this moment, although, you know, who knows what the future may hold. And um, on that no, just sort of speaking about the uh, desperation of it all, I just feel like that's coming out in so many ways and something that to me is just really increasing the, the danger of the moment that we're in, not just in Russia and Ukraine, but uh, potentially around the world. Yeah, I mean, we have seen major energy pipelines uh, destroyed. Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, uh, almost certainly by the United States, whatever their protestations to the contrary. They had been doing everything possible uh, to stop the completion of the constructions of those pipelines. Um, and, and in fact, the, the funny thing is that Antony J. Blinken actually wrote a book uh, about uh, the problems that the U.S. had with energy pipelines from um, – the then Soviet Union to Europe called Ally versus Ally back in, I believe, 1987, Ally versus Ally. You can find it on Amazon, actually. Uh, interesting reading, and it shows the problems that the U.S. has always been trying to sever um, uh, relations, uh, you know, in the form of, of uh, an energy security relationship, but otherwise between Europe and Russia. That is a huge escalation, and, and, and that's going to have uh, major effects. Um, and it basically makes energy infrastructure, pipelines, whatnot, all over the world, fair game, doesn't it? That's, that's, that's pretty scary. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty awful precedent. Um, and we're, we're on this escalatory spiral. Um, where does it end at this point? Uh, I don't know. I don't think anyone else knows. But we continue to hear uh, statements, rhetoric coming from uh, D.C., coming from Brussels that, that uh, you know, Russia must not win, that Ukraine, you know, meaning the Kiev regime, their, their, their proxy putsch regime in Kiev must win on the battlefield. Well, what, what does it take? Are they, are they going to hand Kiev a, a few tap nukes uh, under the table uh, and use, uh, you know, detonate them and use that as a false flag pretext to send NATO troops directly or, or at least U.S. and Polish troops directly into West Ukraine? Because that is probably where the next escalatory step is, is a direct NATO military intervention. It only requires a pretext. And 
The U.S. does have a pretty long history of false flags being used to instigate conflicts, whether that's the Spanish-American War, uh, war with the blowing up of the Maine, the Gulf of Tonkin, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, genocide in Libya, all kinds of, of, of crazy pretexts and false flags. That's, that's the U.S. playbook. That's their M.O. Uh, and unfortunately, with a decreasing amount of military aid that the West can provide to the Kiev regime that they can use effectively with people that doesn't require a massive amount of training and know-how um, with their stockpiles emptied. That's the next logical step is uh, U.S. or Polish troops in in force, uniform troops, not just quote-unquote mercenaries, uh, but some type of direct NATO military incursion into West Ukraine and I don't know. I don't, you know, the possibilities there of an escalatory down into an actual uh, shooting match between Russia and NATO in World War Three are significant. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch TDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments happening inside Virginia. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Phil Valedo, editor of the Virginia Defender newspaper and co-founder of the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Sean. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, Phil, here recently, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin recently said that uh, he'll ask the state legislator for $30 million for a program to uh, recruit police from other states and uh, uh, also is seeking to uh, boost the pay of those police officers, also uh, provide them with better equipment and training, hire more uh, prosecutors, and uh, reportedly wants to increase support for witnesses and uh, crime victims. And this is coming amid uh, what Youngkin is describing as a serious uptick in violent crime in the state. And I'm just sort of wondering how you uh, see this tactic uh, coming from the governor here. Well, it's really interesting. And it it, uh, fits in with Youngkin's whole approach of presenting himself as a a reasonable, uh, if not moderate, conservative while basically supporting many of the same policies uh, of the Trump forces, but uh, without the baggage. So he's obviously, you know, um, preparing a run to become president, uh, perhaps in 2024. That's what it looks like, um, maybe the, uh, the election after. So what he's trying to do is come up with a formula for appealing to um, the right wing MAGA base of the Republican Party that he would need to uh, win over in a primary while not alienating uh, independents who would make the difference uh, in a uh, in the general election. So um, 
crime, violent crime is definitely a problem uh, in Virginia. Um, and uh, particularly in cities uh, that have a large black population and a lot of poverty and uh, increasing a lot of despair. Um, you know, we live, uh, Anna and I, my wife Anna and I live uh, in a, a predominantly African-American mixed working class neighborhood in, in uh, the south uh, part of the, the city of Richmond. And um, uh, this gunfire um, around us, uh, there have been uh, homicides you know, within walking distance. Uh, we get, uh, you know, notices from the police department to our newspaper about crime uh, in the city. And uh, almost every day there's a shooting. Um, and it uh, often involves multiple victims, uh, children, uh, kids walking to school, to the store to get a snack. It, it, sometimes uh, in their own homes, uh, bullets coming through the walls. So... There, the two issues that really affect the black community here in Richmond are education and crime, street crime, violent crime. Um, and nobody uh, seems to have an answer to why young people, particularly young black men, are so uh, uh, quick to pick up a gun and, and uh, use that to solve a, a, an argument, a problem, or... Uh, just establish themselves, you know, reputation-wise in the community. Um, and the, the all the Republicans can come up with is more police, um, while the Democrats basically have the same program without offering any alternative. We recently uh, published a, a small brochure of essays by uh, four prisoners and a community activist uh, on the question of violent crime. Uh, on gun violence, uh, why it, it exists and how to stop it. And um, the four, uh, four of the essays were written by long-term prisoners in the Virginia prison system who had committed gun violence, mostly murders, uh, when they were teenagers and have now been in prison for more than 20 years. And I've never seen anything so in, uh, in, uh, thoughtful and insightful um, as what these, uh, these four men have written and the community uh, activist is a woman who uh, helped provide a, a Mother's Day dinner for a community that uh, experienced a particularly horrific uh, case of gun violence. And they all say the same thing, that this is a result of long-term alienation from a system that has devalued black life and has convinced uh, a certain number of black people that um, they really, their lives don't really matter. And the lives of people who look like them don't really matter. And the answer to uh, that they all raise is this, exactly the same. Um, self-love and more of a sense of community and paying attention to each other. Um, and that's not what society encourages uh, on any level. Um, so there are, there are real efforts in Richmond, particularly led by ex-prisoners, to address the question of gun violence. Um, in, a, in a way that gets down to the uh, to the, more, the deeper, more psychological, cultural, political reasons for the violence. More police on the streets doesn't solve that, but it's the only answer that's being presented. And the cities uh, in rich, in Virginia that have said that they want to cooperate uh, with this program 
uh, Norfolk, Hampton, Petersburg, Roanoke, Newport News, Portsmouth, Richmond, Chesapeake, Danville, Martinsville, Lynchburg, Emporia. These are all cities with substantial black populations and in many cases of black city government. Um, and they are partnering with this right-wing governor to bring more police into their communities because they don't see any other solution to the question of violent crime. Um, at the same time, uh, what, what, what uh, Youngkin is doing is he's presenting a populist program, lower taxes for working people, uh, and the grocery tax, which uh, this is a regressive tax that disproportionately affects low-income people. He wanted to delay an increase in the gas tax and double the standard deduction for state income taxes. Now, some of these um, these proposals were actually opposed by the Democrats because it make, meant taking money out of programs that they thought were important. Uh, for example, the gas tax uh, would have cut into the transportation fund, which is very important for Northern Virginia because of the tremendous uh, traffic congestion. And that's a heavily Democratic area, and those legislators didn't want to lose that money. So uh, Youngkin comes out looking like the guy who's taking care of the working class, and the Democrats look like the, the, the group that's taking care of their constituency, which is seen as uh, largely middle and upper middle class. Um, so, in other words, uh, there's no there's no real alternative. Um, and he's pushing this uh, while, while he, he he raises the the issue of so-called critical race theory, and even set up a uh, um, a hotline when he first was elected, so that uh, students and parents could uh, alert the governor to uh, teachers who were uh, raising what he called inherently divisive concepts. In other words, racism. And uh, that was, uh, you know, a dog whistle uh, appeal to racism. At the same time, on Martin Luther King's holiday, he went over to what's known as the Reconciliation Statue in Richmond, uh, which is a uh, uh, a commemoration of the slave trade and uh, did something with the flowers there. You know, symbolic action, but that you wouldn't expect from an overt racist. So he comes up with symbolic actions that seem to show some sensitivity on the question of race, while his substantive actions are overtly racist, uh, promoting a populist program that affects all people of low income, including the black community, but uh, moves forward to strengthen the repressive apparatus of the state. And this seems to be um, getting him some uh, uh, some leverage. Uh, his, um, his approval rating is uh, higher as a governor in Virginia than uh, Joe Biden's is as president. Um, and he's, uh, you know, spending a great deal of time traveling around the country, uh, supporting uh, Republicans running for, for office. And he's, uh, you know, collecting chits for his run for the presidency. So obviously this this push for more police, um, more prosecutors, you know, goes against the demand for uh, curbing the police um, and bringing them under some form of community control. Um, but he's managed to, to phrase it in such a way, that, to shape it in such a way that um, it's getting support across the board. 
Yeah, I appreciate you laying out all of that uh, uh, context, Phil. I mean, uh, it's interesting to note uh, Youngkin basically trying to position himself as a kind of uh, more reasonable or toned down alternative to Donald Trump for a possible presidential run. And uh, yeah, without question, I feel like uh, this is sort of resonant uh, with a lot of issues that we see across the country when it comes to issues of crime. There's never any, uh, uh, or I should say there's rarely any sort of acknowledgement of the sort of a systemic uh, economic uh, route to uh, the issue of crime. And like you say, uh, most times the alternative is uh, simply more policing. And as you're saying, uh, in the case of the Democrats in the state, they're not offering even that. And so it really feels like uh, uh, what we're seeing from Yunkin here is uh, kind of part and parcel of the broader race and class politics within uh, Virginia itself. And you throw in, uh, you know, a bit of a political ambition on the part of Yunkin, well, then I think that's uh, sort of what we're seeing here. But at the end of the day, uh, the people most affected by this um, uh, aren't really getting a solution outside of the military one from the police, which is why I think that the kind of efforts you were discussing with the prisoners or whatever, this kind of grassroots uh, 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 effort is uh, uh, seems, you know, far more substantive and precisely because, you know, these are people who understand the systemic root of a lot of this and how it functions within Virginia. It seems like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's also interesting is um, as things shape up for the 24 uh, presidential race, um, you know, I, I go on the premise that the people don't pick the president. The ruling class picks the president, depending on who they need at uh, any particular time. Um, and this will be interesting to see what kind of money gets poured into the various uh, Republican uh, primary candidates. Um, and I think the question is going to be, does the ruling class at this point want a figure who will carry out their policies without exasperating the deep divide in the country? I mean, the country split down the middle between the right wing and I can't say the left wing, but somewhat uh, more moderate and uh, progressive. Uh, or do they want, to, or are they worried about increasing social tensions, particularly the emerging workers uh, movement, um, which we're seeing across the uh, across the country in, in many different industries, and um, and social uh, unrest, and they feel that they need a, a far more authoritarian figure who will just come in and take off the gloves, uh, like a DeSantis. Um, uh, my own feeling is they're going to drop Trump. He's just got too much baggage, and they don't need him at this point. There's plenty of other right-wing authoritarians. Um, and what's dangerous about about going with the second choice um, is that the Republican Party is increasingly openly uh, associating with uh, right-wing uh, white supremacist paramilitary organizations like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and some uh, cases out west, uh, candidates even hiring uh, groups like the Proud Boys to provide security at their events. That points to a direction uh, of, of the p- present political situation in Ukraine. Um, uh, some people say, you know, we're going into fascism and they're thinking of Nazi Germany. Um, I, I don't see the Proud Boys um, taking over the country. I see an authoritarian uh, government that cooperates with the, these right-wing militias to make sure that the left uh, and the workers' movement is kept under control. 
And that's the situation that exists in uh, in Ukraine, uh, where the government is not overtly fascist, but is very right wing and authoritarian and uh, cooperates with these uh, well-funded, uh, uh, well-equipped neo-Nazi militias that have made it impossible for progressives to uh, operate uh, openly uh, in the country today. Um, so uh, what, what, do, what do we do? Do we hope that, that Youngkin emerges and we vote for Youngkin rather than the DeSantis? No, of course not. Um, we need an alternative in this country, and we don't have an electoral alternative. So the best thing we can do is continue to build the mass movement, the mass struggle. And that's what we're trying to do here in Virginia. And many people are trying to do that on a local level around the country. And I think uh, there's a, a desperate need for us to come together um, in, in more organized ways and prepare for you know, the more difficult times ahead. And it's interesting living in, in Virginia to see how this particular model is emerging um, of a more moderate-seeming right-winger who has the same basic economic and social policies but is less inclined to play on the uh, the divisions, except in certain areas where he feels he has uh, uh, some, uh, some wiggle room, and that would be on abortion and trans rights that he's been very reactionary on, where he thinks he can, he can uh, scoot by on that um, uh, because of his other populist uh, initiatives. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, excuse me, I think you're um, laying out a number of uh, very relevant uh, dynamics in terms of how uh, uh, some of these different contradictions are uh, unfolding in the U.S. at this moment. And I think it's true that um, how we see a lot of these uh, different trends uh, emerging on the right, but still fundamentally um, uh, pushing a right wing program. And really what I agree with what you say is the need to develop that kind of a mass people's movement precisely because of the strength hold that the ruling class has on uh, uh, electoral politics and on uh, popular consciousness in general with its control over uh, the corporate press and things like this. And so when we talk about that kind of uh, uh, mass movement, Phil, I mean, it does seem that that is going to be our greatest sort of form of protection uh, against uh, what really seems to be an encroaching right wing attack on a lot of our uh, basic democratic rights. Exactly. And, you know, you remember uh, from the history books um, that neither one of us are quite this old. Um, in the 20s, the Klan was very strong, even had a march of 50,000 robed members in Washington, D.C. But 10 years later, in the, in the uh, 30s, uh, it was not nearly so big a factor because there was a massive workers upsurge. Um, and uh, uh, that's ultimately the answer. In the short term, I think people have to very seriously uh, consider whether they're willing to take the practical steps to defend their gatherings, uh, their demonstrations, their protests, their public meetings, because uh, things are moving in the direction where the right wing is beginning to target these things. And when I say target, I mean with violence. Um, And uh, the the, the progressive movement in this country is very, very reluctant to deal with the question of self-defense. Um, particularly armed self-defense. And I think it's going to be uh, a real problem going forward uh, unless they, you know, they uh, seriously examine that uh, in, in terms of the present political uh, situation. But ultimately, it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, are we going to have a mass movement? 
And we've got a lot of uh, challenges uh, in that, uh, you know, equation um, in that uh, we haven't had a real mass movement in this country for, for years. Um, the rise of the uh, nonprofit uh, uh, world that has sucked the life out of so many popular movements by keeping people focused on a single issue uh, kept them dependent on funding from liberal foundations tied to the Democratic Party. Uh, which is why, you know, the, one of the major reasons why we, the anti-war movement is so weak in this country today, um, because if you work for one of these non nonprofits, you cannot promote uh, anti-war uh, activities or even education. So, um, we, you know, we got to get back to a much broader um, uh, view of the movement as being very, uh, you know, uh, you know, the kids talk about intersectionality, um, but we need to make that a reality in terms of, of uh, organizations. I mean, the movements actually cooperating with each other across the lines of issues. Um, uh, we're having a uh, uh, an activity on Saturday. If you don't mind me making a little plug here. Uh, there's a week of uh, anti-war activities going on across the country, and we're hosting a Richmond anti-war teach-in at 5 p.m. Saturday at Richmond's Monroe Park. Um, and uh, after the teach-in, we're going to march to uh, the, the busiest intersection in the city at Broad and Belvedere for a street protest. Um, and I'm really uh, heartened by the fact that we have a Facebook page set up for Richmond anti-war teach-in. Um, and one of the uh, organizations that uh, mark themselves as going is 40 Strong, which is a prisoner-led organization that we've been uh, supporting uh, and working with uh, for some time. And uh, the fact that an uh, organization led by prisoners would want to come out to an anti-war forum um, is a, a, a very encouraging sign. And, and I think that, that uh, there's a, a, if people can understand uh, the connections between these various issues, um, even if it's only the tremendous amount of money that goes into the military budget uh, and the tens of millions of billions that are being sent to Ukraine, the 3.7 billion that goes every year to Israel, um, the tens of uh, the, uh, the the many millions that go to support AFRICOM, uh, the military force in Africa, um, and uh, uh, the continuing blockade of Cuba all of which are issues we're going to spotlight along with Palestine and Iran at the, uh, the forum, then maybe they can see that it's in their interest to pay attention to these uh, international issues and uh, it, see how it actually affects them uh, in their day-to-day -day lives. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about the resignation of a UK Prime Minister Liz Truss. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Roger McKenzie, a reporter for The Morning Star, the world's only daily socialist newspaper in the English language, and the General Secretary of Liberation, one of the oldest human rights organizations in the United Kingdom. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. No problem at all. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, Roger, British Prime Minister Liz Truss uh, resigned her post today after only 44 days as prime minister. And uh, uh, despite the short lived nature of her uh, uh, tenure, it uh, was uh, pretty fraught as it seemed. And in a a statement that uh, was released, uh, Truss said, quote, I cannot deliver on the mandate which I was elected by the Conservative Party. And as it turns out, uh, the resignation of trust is the third by a uh, conservative prime minister in as many years. And so, Roger, I, I, what do you think really led to the resignation of Liz Trust? And what were the conditions uh, that led to her leaving this position, uh, having only been there a short time? Well, essentially, she was incompetent. Um, she had no idea what she was doing. She was completely out of the depths. Um, I I think it's worth remembering as well that she was in post for 44 days and for 10 of those days she wasn't allowed to do anything because of the um, the mourning that took place for the um, death of the the monarch in this country. So uh, actually she was only really doing anything for 33 days. Um, So, um, you know, she, but in that time, she wreaked absolute havoc across the country. She's plunged the country into debt. She's um, she's got it to a, a position where the money markets collapsed completely, um, where um, people were not sure about whether their pensions were going to be paid. Um, massive intervention by um, the Bank of England um, to shore things up. She sacked one of her best friends and the um, the Chancellor quasi courting. Um, the Home Secretary resigned yesterday. Um, it's been an absolute complete mess, but the point I really want to make, Sean, is this, is whoever is the Tory Prime Minister, uh, that will not change um, the agenda uh, that we have to face um, in the UK, um, where workers in England, Scotland and Wales face months, if not years, of falling living standards, falling from a level that was already low before um, Ms. Truss um, came into power. You see rising poverty, more homelessness, the promise of anti-trade union laws, racist scapegoating, um, deep public spending cuts, um, and jingoistic militarism. And whoever takes over from mistrust. We're going to have more of the same because these are basic standard fare for the Conservative Party. So, yeah, I'm glad she's gone. Absolutely delighted that she's gone. But the task now for for socialists um, across the UK is to organise for whoever comes next. 
Yeah, and you know, you touched on a little bit what I wanted to get into in my next uh, question, Roger, is when we look at how, you know, three of these prime ministers have uh, uh, resigned their posts in as many years, I mean, what is the political situation in uh, the UK to where uh, that kind of instability has uh, become somewhat normalized? Well, the, the, the problem is, Sean, is uh, that they're able to, to resign um, and um, simply replace it by whoever the Conservative Party chooses, because that's the system that they have here. It's the, the party um, that is elected. The party then chooses um, its leader. And if the leader um, resigns um, during the course of the uh, parliamentary um, term, then they simply can be replaced by somebody else from within that same party. So, I mean, you could have you could have a new leader every month if you wanted, without having a any kind of legal requirement for a for a general election. What we're saying, what many of us are saying now, is that 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 rule needs to be changed because, and you can't have that many prime ministers um, and them just change um, change um, in course and change in the middle of the race um, and not expect not have to have those people stand for put themselves in front of the electorate again because what we saw with this trust was that many of the promises that um, Boris Johnson's administration was elected on just a couple of years many of those promises, um, she tried to ditch. And in fact, that this is one of the things that happened last night. There's a whole thing about um, um, uh, fracking um, and the, um, the fact that the Tories came to power saying that there would be no more fracking um, taking place. And Liz Truss yesterday forced her own party um, to go against that promise um, that they made to the electorate. Now, if you're going to get elected on the basis of a set of promises as the Tories and anybody else's, and then you decide um, after that that you don't want to do it anymore, then you should be putting yourself forward for election again to seek a new mandate. But she just tried to, to change that. And essentially, the, the trouble that she has caused and the administration that she has led has caused within those 44 days have seen the popularity of the Conservative Party plummet to a state where they face absolute extinction at the next general election. And that's why they shifted her. A load of Tories have looked at it and thought, I'm not going to have a job after the next general election. Um, so we, we need to remove a Labour the Labour Party. I'm not a member of the Labour Party. I'm not a social democrat. I'm a socialist. Um, the Labour Party is something like 30 points ahead in the opinion polls. That would mean wipe out for the Conservative Party. That's why they removed her in a state of panic. Um, and they hope to replace her with somebody who is going to be able to claw back um, some level of popularity that saves um, the jobs of many of them. But, you know, it's not a sustainable position um, anymore. And there must be a general election um, in the UK now. Um, it's the only logical, real solution that's left now. Yeah. And that also makes me wonder, 
about what you mentioned a moment ago, Roger, when you talked about how um, socialists in the UK should be orienting uh, towards this moment in terms of uh, how people organize. And so, like, I'm wondering what 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 is at the root of these uh, worsening material conditions that we're seeing in the UK that, you know, successive governments uh, don't seem equipped to uh, seriously address? Well, it's a, it's a crisis of capitalism, in my view. Um, and um, the way that the Tories and and actually some people within the Labour Party too try and say, oh, you know, this is a world uh, kind of crisis. Well, they're, they're right to a certain extent. It's a world capitalist crisis, inevitable crisis of capitalism. But they try and blame it all on uh, this is all to do with Ukraine when actually people were struggling to put bread on the table uh, way before Putin did his um, illegal, ridiculous, in my view, invasion um, of Ukraine. Um, people were struggling to put bread on the table and struggling to be able to keep a roof over their heads. Um, this isn't to do with Ukraine. This is about where you choose to spend your money. Now, people are struggling to survive, but in the UK and indeed the US, there seems to be no problem whatsoever in paying billions and trillions even um, of dollars and pounds um, on the latest military hardware. I was just on a call, Sean, with um, the launch of a, a campaign by um, Code Pink, and I want to give them a big shout out. It's a campaign against the F-35 um, fighter planes. Um, One trillion, $1.7 trillion so far that um, that piece of military hardware has cost. But people in the US are struggling, and we've got similar programs um, in the UK. So they have chosen, um, political leaders have chosen that they're more happy to spend money on the latest military hardware than helping people to survive when we in this country have hundreds of thousands of people, even hundreds of thousands of people who are in work having to rely on food banks to survive. Um, it's a question of political choice. They have decided that they're more interested in a military adventure in some other parts of the world, in opening up a cold, another Cold War against China, rather than making sure that citizens of their own country um, have enough bread on the table to be able to eat. It's absolutely scandalous time where where politicians, capitalist politicians, have chosen that, that they um, prefer the latest military adventure to looking after um, their own population. It's scandalous, and people need to be given um, a proper choice um, in um, elections. Um, and from there, we can um, um, make our political choices. But in the end, you know, there's an old saying, if um, voting changed anything, they'd abolish it. Um, and that's why we have to make sure that we build a strong left movement, only a united Labour socialist movement and campaigning on a left-wing programme, a socialist programme, can set a new course um, uh, towards um, prosperity, social justice and peace. Um, we can't just rely on the same crowd who are going into your Senate, in, into your White House, going into our Parliament um, to, to get this right. That is not in their interest. We have to um, build working class power to be able to fight back against these people um, because they don't have our interests at heart. They have the interest of capital, the interest of profit at their heart. 
Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you sort of raising the uh, centrality of imperialism to uh, uh, working class issues, both in the UK and the US, Roger, because I think that's uh, absolutely true that um, this this almost trillion dollar US uh, war machine is, you know, taking precious resources uh, uh, away from uh, uh, people as our conditions in this country continue to uh, worsen as well. And in our last couple of minutes, I was hoping you could uh, say something about that, about how important it is to sort of understand the role that imperialism plays in uh, our conditions uh, within our own countries. I think I think part of the problem, Sean, is that people look at when they hear words like imperialism or colonialism, they they think it's a long gone thing of the past and something that you just read about in history books. When in fact we have an imperialism um, that is new in a sense that where. And countries like the United States and their G7 mates can just um, run roughshod over the rest of the world. They can um, announce that they're doing um, and sanctions against China, the you know country that hasn't been at war with anybody for 40 years, but the United States somehow holds themselves up as some some kind of protector of the free world. You know, you know what I mean. This is. Um, it's time this stopped. It's time that we as working class people decided it was time to organize and put a stop to these people. And we have to stop the invasion of Haiti, which is another thing that they're doing, another example of the kind of US imperialism where they think they can just go anywhere and do what they like and impose their own will. It's our time now to stand up and say enough's enough um, of this sort of behavior and we need to bring an international, build an international working class movement that's really going to make a difference. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Roger, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, October 20th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Rippers are standing by. You can also download our show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. Can hear the show also on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. Uh, you can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And just like every day, we are streaming live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, 
We want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And I'm happy to be joined for the hour today by, by any means necessary producer, Josh Gomez. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Sean. Absolutely. And, you know, Josh, I was looking at this piece of uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, whose uh, approval rating is uh, kind of maintaining at about 40 percent as the midterms draw nearer and nearer. Of course, next month here in the United States in November, uh, uh, largely uh, dealing with issues around the economy. Now, a poll that was released this week from uh, Reuters Ipsos uh, showed that Biden's approval ratings basically uh, didn't change from a poll that was taken a week ago um, that was near the lowest point of his uh, 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 presidency. Uh, although he saw a, a little bit of an improvement, sort of a moderate improvement at a certain point. And uh, according to a report I was looking at this from The Hill, it says about a third of the respondents in this most recent poll uh, said that the economy was the biggest issue facing uh, uh, the country. Now, the Democrats picked up uh, a support following the Supreme Court's uh, decision of overturning uh, Roe v. Wade and the constitutional right to an abortion. That was uh, uh, back in June. But I mean, as we've been pointing out here on the show, I mean, there really just wasn't that much of a real substantive response from uh, the Biden White House uh, to that whole issue. I mean, there was, you know, as we've noted before, a kind of raft of uh, uh, non-solutions and half measures and, and things like that, which I think we continue to see. I mean, we've been discussing this week about uh, uh, Biden basically dangling abortion rights over the head of the American people like a carrot, basically saying that if you if you vote blue, then we'll give you this abortion access that we've been saying we're going to codify into law for all of these years and continue to refuse to. And so, you know, while uh, uh, I still tend to think that if we look at polling, then um, I, I tend to think that uh, Republicans and Democrats, although Republicans, I think, generally might be doing a tad bit better in polling as of now, it's still, uh, uh, I think, interestingly close in, in terms of uh, uh, what may happen in the uh, 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 November midterms. Now, a part of me wonders if, frankly, if if these kinds of anxieties are going to actually help uh, uh, push the Democrats, you know, give them that last push that they need to actually make some kind of a, a good process electorally. Or uh, will it be a situation where, you know, uh, people uh, basically feel like the Biden administration is not delivering much for them, except for things, you know, clearly geared toward trying to get their vote, like the whole thing about the abortion access or the marijuana arrest or the student loan debt forgiveness and all of that. And, you know, honestly, <laughs> excuse me, what it really shows, I think, uh, uh, Josh, is that for this uh, Democrat Party administration, I mean, it's just so clear that they're not interested in, in delivering uh, these things that are so sorely needed by millions of people across the United States. I mean, particularly for the people that the Democrats uh, continue to consider their base. And so the whole thing, I mean, you know, the whole electoral kind of dog and pony show in the United States is always kind of frustrating. It's always kind of annoying and how uh, cyclical it is. But this time around, it feels there's like a just a thick layer of, of cynicism 
that seems to be ensconced in this whole thing to where it feels even emptier and more hollow than it typically does. And I, you know, just the way I think the reason that is, is because of how conditions, you know, continue to worsen in a number of ways here in the United States, where there's clearly an all out assault on uh, a lot of our basic democratic rights with like no real pushback from uh, uh, the Democrats. And so obviously, you know, things remain to be seen in terms of uh, the midterms next month, uh, Josh. But honestly, I just feel like everything we've been seeing lately, um, uh, I think, frankly, shows that we may be witnessing uh, an even further deepening of the political crisis in the U.S. Absolutely, Sean. Just like to go back to your comments on on abortion. I agree. It's like just a really I mean, just a really sick move by the Biden administration to essentially dangle this 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 federal legislation uh, over people as a way to drum up support in the midterm elections. You know, it's interesting that uh, the Biden administration wants people to vote blue for abortion rights in this upcoming election. But the blue votes from the 2020 election, which originally put Biden and the Democrats in power, don't matter. I, I mean, I personally just think that's kind of an interesting uh, and funny hypocrisy uh, about it. And, you know, I have to agree with you, Sean. This is going to be a really interesting midterm election, but it's going to be interesting for, I think, a few different reasons. And I think, uh, the con- of course, like what we have to always remember about things like the midterm elections is that the, they have historically low voter turnout. And so who is going to, uh, when this election is really going to be who is speaking to concerns that get people to uh, go to the polls. So the, what, what the uh, poll that we, you just read off uh, said is that the, the economy is the biggest problem facing the country, according to uh, uh, voters who were in the poll. That doesn't mean that abortion isn't still a top issue. It is still a top issue. Many, many polls have that uh, ranked in the top five, I think, uh, issues uh, that people uh, that that survey respondents say is their top issue in voting. So it's not like abortion is just gone uh, from the minds of uh, of American voters. Uh, it's still very much present. The attacks on abortions are, are still uh, very much happening. But the Biden administration seems like it's OK with just letting all of that go and uh, not delivering on campaign promises. And so it's, it, you know, who's going to uh, drum up more support in the midterm elections, the Republicans who say that they will do uh, this thing or that thing, or a Biden administration that has not delivered on its promises uh, and is making more promises that uh, uh, they're honestly unlikely to deliver on. I I, I know if I were going to vote uh, that I wouldn't have any reason to believe uh, Joe Biden or the Democrats uh, as the promises that uh, that they make. Uh, so. Really, what I what I think is going to be interesting about these midterms, though, is that it's I think it's going to unleash a, a new I don't want to say cynicism because I think that gives it a, a more of a negative connotation than I want to uh, than I want to to express. But it's going to unleash a, a new cynicism, a new uh, apathy almost uh, to the two party system in general, uh, but not necessarily to par- politics uh, as a is a broader uh, as a broader construct, as a broader context. And so I think. We may, we could very well see a broad, a, a, maybe a swell in 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 action in in 
extra political or extra electoral uh, political work outside of these, because if the Biden administration is not delivering uh, on these promises, on these things that they are promising, uh, and if a potential uh, Republican Congress uh, gets in, uh, inevitably, like that, that's not going to be good for most working and poor people. Uh, so, if that all happens, then these uh, desires don't go away. These uh, wants, these uh, issues don't they don't go away. And so, what what I see this upcoming midterm election as is, is almost laying a groundwork for another resurgence in activism and in, in, a, in a in a movement to demand that these things happen. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, another thing I was thinking about that that's kind of funny about how um, <clears throat> this whole thing is playing out is the deflection and really the excuse is kind of it, it's built into the delivery. So, you know, uh, Biden is saying that if you vote for us, if we're able to um, uh, uh, maintain our majority and expand our uh, 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 presence there, then you'll get this thing that you want so much. And so the implication is, is that if enough people you don't vote, then you won't get this uh, fundamental right, even though we have the ability to give it to you right now. And I have to say that would have gone a long ways to actually uh, incline people to support them. Um, but basically, if you don't do this, if you don't vote and then you won't get uh, abortion access and it'll be your fault. And, and that's always uh, something that has to be sort of built in to 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 the whole piece. It always has to be somebody else's fault that these fundamental base of things that have broad popular support can't come to be. It's either uh, the fault of the voters. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, uh, it's the fault of, uh, of the Republicans somehow, the, the, the fault of um, uh, third parties. It's always somebody else's fault when uh, the Democrats either lose or if people uh, uh, aren't uh, able to get the things that they actually seek. And it's just a wild thing, because as we often point out on the show, the uh, uh, the, the president of the United States, I mean, the, the current Democratic president has a lot of power to do a lot of things right now. And the Democrats in Congress uh, uh, could be uh, doing a lot as well, but they consistently just choose not to because they are not beholden ultimately to the interest of a poor working and oppressed people. They are beholden first and foremost to the interest of their class and uh, most immediately to their own personal uh, financial situation, knowing about how a lot of these uh, corporate interests and capitalist elements are firmly, uh, well, you know, they, they firmly have a lot of these officials in their pocket. And so it's no coincidence then that it seems that so many of these decisions being made um, are contrary to the interests of so many people in this country because the interests of the capitalist class are contrary to the interest of poor working and oppressed people um, here in the U.S. And so that's why there always has to be this this dog and pony show and the smoke and mirrors and this this political theater that we're subject to on a constant basis here in the United States, because there has to be something that muddies the waters and to try to, you know, um, obscure the picture and the real reason why so many people are suffering right now, because if it was widely understood that it was the system itself that was uh, uh, the root cause of so much of this, then the ruling class is aware that people would likely organize to really fight against and maybe even overturn that very system. 
So when we see these pronouncements by Biden and things from the Democrats and, of course, the Republicans as well, all we're really seeing is uh, the ruling class doing what it feels it has to to protect the capitalist system. That is what they are sworn to uphold, not to protect us, not to provide us with the necessities of life, not to, you know, actually offer leadership in times of crisis like, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic and things like that. It's whatever is going to protect the bottom line of their sponsors and whatever is going to protect what goes in and out of their own pocket. And so it just bears repeating that, you know, the ruling class just literally doesn't care if we live or die. And our lives are only valuable in so far as uh, uh, the extent to which they can be exploited for profit. And so that underlying issue of uh, capitalism and uh, the ruling classes of uh, political representatives in their efforts to protect it, I think indelibly colors a lot of what we see here in the U.S. Absolutely, Sean. Uh, I mean, at the root of this is that this uh, whole thing is that this is class warfare. I mean, the uh, inflation itself. I mean, uh, for example, uh, and the grinding of of uh, working and poor people uh, for all of the the money that they earn, uh, and raising prices to 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 uh, get that to, to price gouge essentially uh, is itself uh, an example of class warfare. That uh, that not not only is it that. Uh, Congress or the president uh, has not done anything, uh, and it's that they won't do anything about uh, issues such as that, uh, because they're all part of the same club. Uh, why would any any politician want to uh, decrease the profits of a a company when they're all invested in those companies anyway? I mean, we we saw a, a, a whole scandal of. Uh, 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 members of Congress investing into corporations uh, that made billions of dollars in the pandemic before uh, most of the public knew about the danger of the pandemic and knew it was coming. Uh, and it's it's no I, I, I don't think it's crazy to assume that uh, some of this might have been an almost uh, uh, in, inside information type of uh, deal where the, the briefings that these members of Congress are getting are informing their financial decisions. I mean, there's a whole meme uh, Twitter account that's uh, essentially just tracking what Nancy Pelosi's stock portfolio uh, is is doing. And it, it goes to show what, uh, uh, what kind of unity there is between uh, these politicians and uh, the rich the rich the the one percent the ruling class uh it, it goes to show that that there is no interest in 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 doing anything about price gouging or or any of these other other issues because they stand to directly profit from it and also sean i wanted to you go back to something you said uh before as well uh mentioning that the democrats always say this this thing that it's always someone else's fault that x y or z happened and it's you know it's just really interesting uh give it a Really interesting to hear, hear that um, with understanding like the, the context of what the Democrats are even doing right now in the uh, midterm elections. Uh, the Democrats are pouring money into uh, congressional races and other races uh, where you have election deniers and, and, and other f uh, forms of uh, extreme radical uh, right wingers uh, standing for the Republican nominations for uh, whatever uh, race they are in. And some of them are winning. And so it's just really interesting that the Democrats are, you know, are likely if the Republicans win to shift blame for 
the erosion of democratic rights that the victory of these some of these candidates is likely to bring, uh, how likely the Democrats are to shift that onto uh, working and poor people who either did not vote or voted Republican uh, when they're the ones that are uh, platforming these people in the first place. I mean, I don't know about you, Sean, but when I do vote, I don't research every single uh, race on the ballot. I mean, uh, there's so there's so many there's so many races uh, to just just that there is on the ballot, and so I, I can't possibly research all of them. And so if you put somebody on the ballot uh, under the Republican uh, nomination, and somebody either does a straight ticket vote uh, as a Republican, or uh, decides that you know they want to like uh, just pick and choose based on how they feel about a certain issue or a certain uh, office, then. I don't see how you can reasonably place the blame on uh, on a voter when the the fact that they get onto the ballot in the first place is is partly because of some of the things that the Democrats are doing. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's 2-0252-11320. I continue to be joined by Josh Gomez and uh, we have a caller on the line here. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, um, I was just curious how you feel about the idea that, so, for example, abortion rights, these sort of contentions that Republicans and Democrats have on single issues are sort of the exception that proves the rule, you know, that we find them fighting about these issues. But generally, they're kind of quiet when it comes to issues of economy or just, just generally speaking, the ruling class contending them in any way kind of shows how much they actually agree with one another on, on certain subjects. And so we're, they're constantly tailing Republicans, never setting forward any sort of progressive idea because it's easier for them to just distinguish themselves against right-wing attacks. And these right-wing attacks have a lot of weight and, and mass support among, you know, reaction their reactionary base but they kind of let the republicans do the work of setting the stage and then they just sit back and find a few points where they disagree and that's kind of like the, the extent of their strategy is not as leaders but as, as really just tailing the republicans constantly and i feel like they they allow them to kind of take up so much space because they don't want to put forward progressive ideas that might scare their donor class well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Josh, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I have to, you know, I actually do have to agree. You know, it's, it's and it's honestly a really interesting observation that I don't think I've ever uh, noticed myself. But I think our caller is, is correct in that uh, the Democrats are often pitting themselves as an opposition to, to Republicans and allowing Republicans to uh, set, essentially set the agenda for elections. I mean, uh, in 2020 and also in some of the uh, races uh, in the 2022 elections, I, the whole some of the platforms for candidates and uh, the DNC was just anti-Trump 
and Trump was the uh, platform essentially, uh, which of course uh, is not going to be a successful uh, platform in the long term. Uh, even Biden uh, presented like who was not the voters, uh, the Democratic voters' choice, uh, pretty much up until Super Tuesday when Bernie Sanders was uh, defeated by. Uh, a coalition, or really, really the institution of the Democratic Party. Uh, Biden was never like the choice of the people, and there wasn't a whole lot of enthusiasm behind him. But he won in part because he ran on an anti-Trump, anti whatever you want to call uh, uh, this, you know, Trumpism, right, uh, right. Uh, far, the far right, whatever, uh, whatever you want to call that platform. He won uh, because he's presenting himself as that uh, alternative without really presenting any sort of a progressive vision uh, for working in poor people, working for and oppressed people. Uh, so, our, you know, I think our calling made a really great point about that because it it, it just really shows what uh, what the Democrats really are, are doing and like how how. This uh, this push and pull between the Democrats and the Republicans is is really really a facade, like really a, a way of of trying to convince uh, voters that there is a, a a real form of democracy in the U.S. when we don't have a choice to uh, live without uh, environment like the our environment being polluted or or even having we don't even have a right to food or housing or the necessities of life. Uh, so yeah, I, I really have to appreciate my the or the uh, the caller's point because it's 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 something that uh, yeah, is <laughs> the Democrats do uh, allow themselves to be uh, to have the agenda set for them, and it's really really interesting and a honestly cynical <laughs> uh, uh, way of doing things. Yeah, and I feel like what we're really talking about here is the performance of ruling class politics in the United States. So we see the Democrats and Republicans, you know, quibble about certain uh, uh, social issues. And I've mentioned here on the show before about how the right wing opportunistically seized upon uh, uh, the issue of abortion, even though it wasn't really an issue amongst the right in this country at one time, but but seized upon it because they knew that uh, they wouldn't be able to to successfully go after uh, uh, voting rights and these other things that had been won through the black liberation struggle because they were too popular and the black movement was too strong. And so they engaged in this sort of a slow burn, this decades long uh, 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 campaign, if you will, to uh, uh, encroach on uh, basic democratic rights little by little. And here in 2022, following the overturning of Roe, that was the, the switch that that had to get flipped so that they could finally, finally, after all these years, go after the real prize, which is voting rights, which is why we're seeing all these issues of racist uh, of voter suppression in the U.S. right now. And as we're noting, what has been the response from the Democrats to that? Uh, nothing. But uh, to the point of the caller, when we look at um, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of contention, if you will, the lack of conflict between these two parties, on certain issues, uh, whether it be the economy, although, you know, um, you know, they have a certain differences on that, to be sure. And certainly issues of uh, war and imperialism, where in that particular case uh, of Democrats and Republicans are in lockstep. And we should always remember that despite whatever uh, differences there may be between Democrats and Republicans, they are both 
uh, fundamentally ruling class formations. And uh, therefore, there is going to be a lot of overlap in terms of what they do and what they put forth. Now, it doesn't always look exactly the same. And the way that I tend to describe it is that um, both parties sort of have the same destination. They're just, you know, taking different routes and maybe moving at different speeds. It's just like how recently we saw... um, Joe Biden uh, talking about how Democrats and mainstream Republicans and independents have to band together basically in an anti-fascist electoral front uh, against the Trumpist wing of the uh, Republican Party. And I mean, he even went out of his way to say that, you know, he respects, you know, the, the quote unquote real Republicans. And the issue he has are what he calls the MAGA Republicans or the Trumpists. You know what I mean? And so it's a pretty it was a really interesting sort of tactic because it's clearly the Democratic Party and the Biden administration positioning themselves as the only real antidote to this uh, uh, encroaching right wing attack. So they're acknowledging that the right is engaging in this attack on basic democratic rights. But number one, again, they're not actually fighting for these things. And therefore, well, and really they've proven throughout time that simply voting for them is not some kind of antidote. I mean, if we look at uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, presidency in comparison to um, uh, uh, the Trump administration and about how there are a number of things that Joe Biden uh, uh, maintained from the Trump administration, certain things you could argue were, were worsened under uh, uh, Joe Biden and things like that. And so uh, the fundamental uh, point like that, what the caller was pointing to is this issue of Democrats tailing Republicans. And I really, I really like that formulation. People don't typically put it that way, but that is fundamentally what it is. The, the Democrats are never aggressive with any kind of positive program or real alternative or any kind of fight back to the uh, 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 Republicans and um, even even uh, uh, within that. And because of that, it 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 allows the Republicans to be able to gain the kind of momentum that they have. And, And literally, if we remember from the beginning of the Joe Biden administration of his presidency, his arms were wide open to uh, the mainstream of that party. But I mean, to to think that, you know, the Republicans are just going to, you know, divorce themselves of Trumpism, even if they somehow, you know, no longer are able to tolerate Trump himself as the individual. Because I tend to think that, you know, as we look towards uh, 2024, for the next presidential election, even if Donald Trump isn't on the ballot, Trumpism absolutely will be. And it's like we were talking with uh, Phil Willato, um earlier in the show, and he was talking about how people like Yunkin of Virginia are positioning themselves as a kind of alternative to Trump, when in reality, it's, it's just it, it's the same uh, far right politics, just with the sort of more polite or, or reasonable sort of presentation, which I think is fundamentally uh, what uh, we see a lot of from Joe Biden. You know what I mean? Uh, but we have a uh, caller on the line here. David, tell us what's on your mind. Oh, hi. This is, uh, I, I just, uh, this is from yesterday's show, so I don't know if you'd be able to comment on it, but I thought the uh, either the host or, or the guest said that, uh, most of climate change was uh, related to the military, and I, I guess I disagree with that uh, based on what I know. You know, if you if you look at the uh, 
let's say, CO2 emissions, I mean, by far, most of that comes from automobiles and power plants, transportation. I, I've never heard, like, the military mentioned in, in that discussion. So I, I, maybe I heard it wrong or, or whatever. But uh, anyway, uh, if you can comment on that, I appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the show. Thanks. Well, thank you. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. And I mean, yeah, uh, uh, what I'm saying in that is that, uh, as we often note, there's, you know, about 800 some odd uh, uh, military bases and installations that the U.S. has uh, around the earth. So when you think about everything that that generates also in terms of weapons and all these sorts of things, then uh, this is why we say, and and it's been documented, that uh, the U.S. military is in fact one of the greatest polluters uh, uh, on the earth, if not the greatest polluter, sort of who you ask. Now, those things that you mentioned without question, excuse me, are contributors as well. But when you talk about the funding and maintenance of a never-ending global war machine, right? Well, then it's quite natural that this will have an impact on the uh, uh, environment because we have to remember that war is a corporate venture. It is a money-making, profit-making venture, right? And so just like all of the uh, corporations that we point to that have contributed greatly to uh, 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 climate change, well, that goes for the war profiteers and the weapon makers too. It goes for the Raytheons. It goes for the Northrop Grumman's. You know, all of this is sort of a a part and parcel. And as we know, uh, the capitalist system uh, 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 out of which uh, imperialism grows is the main driver of climate change itself. And so when you take that to a worldwide scale, that is how it has this kind of uh, poisonous impact. And so th- this is why we say that that imperialism is uh, responsible for so much of climate change because uh, simply of the way that it operates. I mean, when you consider, excuse me, that, you know, that the U.S. has a larger military budget then the next nine countries combined, combined, you know what I mean? Then it's inevitable that all these sorts of things uh, really have uh, an impact. And so this is the role that capitalism plays in driving these existential threats to uh, uh, humanity. So when we see uh, this uptick in, 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 in uh, both in number and intensity of things like hurricanes, uh, floodings, uh, you know, I feel like we're, we're seeing the uh, impacts of this all uh, around the world. And so understanding that capitalist production is the driver of that and uh, imperialist war is sort of that uh, ratcheted up. Well, this is how I think we really see the impacts on uh, 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 war, right? Excuse me, uh, a war on uh, climate change. And see, this is why we often say that there's a fundamental inhumanity in capitalism. It is fundamentally against the interest of humanity because it is ultimately designed to generate mega profits for a wealthy minority of people that hoard 
more than the overwhelming majority of the wealth, while the sort of uh, uh, rank and file people, the, the masses of poor working and oppressed people, have a small fraction of the wealth. Uh, sort well, number one, it's stolen from them, and then the little bit that's left over is sort of uh, distributed across them. Well, at the same time, we're seeing an uptick, a rise in uh, the cost of living, and uh, all of these sorts of things. This is what creates these uh, situations of uh, exploitation and suffering and housing insecurity and food insecurity and all of those things. So it's all connected. We see an overinvestment in war and uh, imperialism and an underinvestment in people's needs and in uh, human interests, frankly. You know what I mean? And so that, uh, you know, to, to, to paraphrase, you know, uh, Karl Marx, we talks about how when you have uh, uh, the glut of wealth, accumulated at one end of society, well, then you see the accumulation of suffering at the other end. And so that's what we're seeing uh, 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 unfold right before our very eyes uh, in this uh, moment, Josh. And as ever, just a reminder of how important it is that we really work and fight and organize uh, to really overturn the people, the institutions, and the systems that are responsible for all of this. Absolutely, Sean. You know, uh you know, when we were, you were discussing the caller's uh, comments there, uh, what came to mind for me was the the situation at uh, Red Hill in Hawaii where uh, the Navy has a, 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 a I think it's a base or uh, some, some sort of operations there where fuel tanks are literally leaking into a, a, a water supply and uh, people are getting very sick. Uh, because of this, the 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 U.S. military's uh, continued use uh, of this uh, of this operation on this island, uh, and that because the fuel tanks continue uh, to leak, and it just I think perhaps that's the the most raw form of of uh, of destruction and disaster and catastrophe that the U.S. military environmentally. Uh, uh, Un, un, uh, I guess unleashes on to uh, people who essentially aren't you and me, or, or excuse me, uh, people who aren't uh, like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates of the world uh, by destroying environments. I mean, this is it's well documented that uh, where U.S. military bases are, uh, there uh, follows a lot of uh, pollution, not least uh, from uh, the uh, sheer amount of vehicles and. Uh, and 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 fuel that's used on the uh, on the bases by you know by by the vehicles that are stationed there, but also uh, also just from the uh, sheer amount of people uh, that there are uh, that are concentrated in those bases. There's a lot going on, uh, a lot of consumption on those, and so the war machine actively uh, threatens the health of even people in the United States. Because these bases are everywhere, uh, everywhere. We have 800 bases all over the world outside of the United States and countless military uh, bases in the U.S. And Sean, to go back to something that we were discussing before uh, uh, before this last this last caller about tailing and the Democrats, I just wanted to, to make note that uh, to understand the Democrats is tailing the Republicans, I think, uh, is noteworthy. Up until, or, or excuse me, uh, you can really like see the trajectory starting, or at least if, from my political knowledge, uh, in the '80s and Bill Clinton, right? Because Bill Clinton was a very reactionary and neoliberal 
uh, Democrat neoliberal president. I mean, not they all are, but uh, in particular, it was a very much a reaction to the neoliberalism of the Reagan era, uh, and so cut a lot of uh, benefits for uh, poor people uh, through the. Uh, so I forget the name, the official name, but the I think the name of the legislation was the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. And you can also kind of understand uh, the further neoliberalization and 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 uh, I guess retrenchment or uh, 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 seizure of benefits for working people that were passed uh, in the decades following World War II. Uh, as a reaction also to the so-called Contract for America, which was a positive. Uh, sort of platform that was presented by Republicans, uh, right? And so this is another form of uh, understanding how the Democrats really are tailing this right-wing agenda and and in some ways adopting parts of it uh, in order to uh, get elected and, and to serve their uh, corporate uh, friends. Uh, and it's it's just, it, it just goes to show that like the Democrats like don't have a positive platform because if they did, uh, it would really really expose the hollowness of that platform and how they really are are uh, one and the same. And like going back to our other com- conversation about the military, I mean, uh, Democrats are just as likely as Republicans now to support spending even more money uh, on the military budget. I mean, the National Defense Authorization Act is, I think, estimated to be over $800 billion now. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That could go to a lot of really important things, you know, not least of which like uh, climate change mitigation uh, uh, efforts, but instead, Democrats are wanting to spend that uh, money on war. Yeah, definitely. And you know, just to be a little more specific, I mean, you know, the the the, the so-called U.S. Department of Defense is really the War Department. I mean, it is the largest uh, institutional consumer of fossil fuels on Earth. And there was a report that actually came out in 2019 that said that if if the U.S. military were a country, its fuel usage alone would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. So it would be somewhere between Peru and Portugal in terms of how it uh, uh, consumes these fossil fuels. And I was also looking at uh, a piece in Quartz uh, that said in part, quote, in 2017, the U.S. military bought about 269,230 barrels of oil a day and emitted more than 25,000 kilotons of carbon dioxide by burning those fuels. The U.S. Air Force purchased $4.9 billion worth of fuel and the Navy $2.8 billion, followed by the Army at $947 million and the Marines at $36 million. I mean, this also brings to mind the uh, issues of uh, uh, the burn pits that that we've been talking about, uh, uh, that that we have talked about in uh, uh, the show, and not only the uh, sort of uh, health benefits it has on the individuals that live around them, but how, you know, when you consistently do this, uh, what that means for the climate as well. And so this is what I mean when I say that just the maintenance of uh, the U.S. global imperialist war machine uh, uh, is that uh, detrimental. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things where uh, a lot of country By any means necessary. Welcome back 
So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Josh Gomez is here. Want to thank uh, both of our callers so far today. And Josh, uh, not to make too hard of a pivot, but I uh, did want to talk to you some about uh, uh, baseball and what's been happening there. Or more specifically, I wanted to hear what you had to say about baseball. You might have to explain it to me like I'm uh, five here, but it's my understanding that uh, uh, the MLB is in the playoffs right now. And so just wondering what what are some things we should be uh, looking for in terms of all of that? Oh man, Sean, there's so much I could I could go into here. I mean, I'd stay up late every single night uh, watching uh, baseball, unfortunately, which is <laughs> terrible for my sleep schedule. And now basketball is back too, so that's just going to make it much worse. But mm. you know, there's a, a lot of really fun and interesting things happening right now uh, in the baseball world. Not least of which I or probably may, or maybe like the most surprising uh, is that the uh, so the, this year's playoffs are actually expanded from years past. Previously, I think there was uh, I think twelve teams in the playoffs play playoffs and now we have uh there's an added extra two teams for one from each uh uh league or conference if you will uh so we've got an expanded playoffs and one of those teams the Philadelphia Phillies which wouldn't have made the playoffs last year is now in the championship series for the uh national league which is kind of just crazy to think about because uh they wouldn't have been in in uh in the championship series last year uh honestly Far and away, the underdogs in both of the both of the division the series that they uh, that they played the wild card series and the division series and somehow uh, came out on top uh, and so so now they're playing another wild card team uh, which uh, did not qualify for for a bye uh, in the playoffs but got in and had to play an extra series uh, the the San Diego Padres uh, and so those those two. Teams are now uh, duking it out in the championship series. We had uh, uh, the San Diego Padres tie it up with, uh, what was it, a five-run inning uh, yesterday uh, and tie up the series. That way, really just outstanding stuff going on uh, in the NL, and it really just, I think, speaks to <laughs> uh, the kind of crazy things that can happen in, in uh, playoff, playoff baseball. And then in the AL, of course, you have my uh, Houston Astros, the 2017 World Series champs. Uh, you cannot take that away from us, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who are, are now uh, duking it out with the uh, New York Yankees, who are almost uh, almost surely going to lose. But, you know, we'll see. There's a lot of baseball left uh, there. Uh, but, uh, we, you know, I really think that these playoffs have just been a whole, like, like they've kept me up in it because these these games have been good and they're just full of upsets. I mean, we have the uh, one 100 win team, actually multiple 100 win teams. Uh, and just for context, the baseball season is 162 games, and a 100 win uh, team is a very good team. We had uh, we had three total in the playoffs, and two of them are already out. Those two are the the, the Dodgers and the Mets. The Mets were beat by. Uh, both the Mets and the Dodgers would be by the San Diego Padres, uh, who again were a wild card team and uh, who really made just these huge acquisi- uh, acquisitions in Juan Soto and Josh Bell uh, and Josh Hader, uh, the former two from the Nationals and the the la- uh, latter from uh, the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, we just, you know, have 
crazy upsets. I would never have expected the Mets to not make the division series. I honestly expected a rematch between the Astros and the Dodgers for the playoffs. And so it's just it's just a really exciting time for baseball because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the the uh, the Mariners in the in the American League, the Seattle Mariners, uh, who played the Astros in their division series, uh, really had a tough uh, uh, had a tough challenge for the Astros in that series. Game three, which is the game that uh, uh, was an elimination game for Seattle, went 18 innings. Uh, baseball is a nine inning game. The average baseball game lasts on average about like three a little bit over three hours and that that uh, game was six and a half hours uh, and I was on the couch the entire time yelling <laughs> <laughs> on the edge of your seat yeah absolutely you know literally on the edge of my seat you can you can tell from my my couch where uh, I, I'm sitting because the parts of it are worn oh you left a groove in it. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> no it's it's right now it's a really really exciting time for baseball uh because you just have no idea what's going to happen you know the, and then also uh that 18 inning game was uh, the longest for this playoffs and tied for the longest in postseason history. But it's also not uh, not the only absurdly long game this postseason because we had a different game go for 15 innings, uh, both of the which are scoreless and just yeah, it's a great time for baseball, Sean. And I, you know it's just really exciting. And I'm probably going to stay up late again to watch more more baseball soon. <laughs> So, I mean, given the fact that, you know, it feels like we're in a moment where anything can happen in the MLB. I mean, so what do you think of the uh, the, the odds for the, the Astros really pulling it out here? Uh, I feel really good about the Astros uh, pulling it off here. Finally, hopefully I'm knocking on wood right now uh, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, there's a lot of reasons. But uh, we are our starting pitching is very good when they're on. Uh, but more importantly, our bullpen. So. Uh, just to give a little bit more context here, so starting pitchers go for uh, generally like six or seven uh, innings. There's three outs in an inning, so they have to get three people out either by a strikeout or by uh, uh, tagging uh, runners on bases or uh, by catching balls before they drop onto the ground. Um, so starting pitchers go for like six or seven innings, but there's nine in, nine innings in a game, and somebody needs to pitch the rest of that, right? So uh, the bullpen is where that extra pitching comes from, and they come in relief. And the Astros have the best bullpen in the league right now, uh, with a very very low. Uh, the stats ha- are very much favor pitchers. Uh, those pitchers uh, in that. Other teams aren't getting hits and aren't getting runs off of our bullpen. And even though the offensive production hasn't been great for the Astros uh, recently, uh, our bullpen is doing really good at keeping games uh, close and competitive. What, and so when the offense does decide to produce, uh, it often produces uh, to, to an extent that that uh, the Astros come out on top I, in the uh, aforementioned uh, wild or division series against the Seattle Mariners. The Astros were actually down in both games, uh, both of the first two games. Uh, and I think in the first down by three and then in the second down by uh, two before we got uh, big hits that uh, pushed us over the top. So I'm I'm really excited and I really think that the Astros have a very good chance of not only making it to the World Series, possibly winning the World Series, but also uh, I'm also kind of traumatized almost by the last two World Series appearances that we have uh, 
that we have been in because we are also favored to win in 2019 against the Washington Nationals and the 2021 uh, World Series against the Atlanta Braves. And we lost both times. Uh, in, I mean, to me, in embarrassing fashion, but the uh, uh, Astros losing is embarrassing It's in itself to me. But uh, I'm excited. It'll be interesting to see which team is the so-called team of destiny uh, this year, though. <laughs> Yeah, um, which, which year was was it when Paul Wall was talking about World Series grills? That was 2017. That was 2017? We, yeah, that was 2017 when uh, when we went to the World Series for the first time in, I think, 12 years at that point. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. That was funny. Yeah, big, big shout out to Paul Wall. You uh, you also mentioned about uh, basketball. I mean, uh, what, what, what do you think we should be looking for there? Oh, wow. There's a lot, a lot going on uh, in the NBA right now. I mean, the, the season started this week. There's there's a lot of uh, interesting narratives, and the funny thing about basketball is uh, a lot of people make this joke that uh, basketball is kind of like a reality show where there's a lot of like narratives and like rivalries uh, between players. Um, but there is a lot of like really interesting narratives. You have star point guard, point guard uh, Jamal Murray of the Denver Nuggets coming back from a a, a very brutal, honestly, uh, injury that could uh, really put the Nuggets on top, the Denver Nuggets on 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 a really good course for uh, championship championship contention this year. Their center is uh, two time back to back league MVP Nikola Jokic, who who's just really good at uh, passing the ball and and uh, helping other people score as well as scoring himself. So I personally think that the Nuggets are a huge huge team to watch. And then you've also got the. Uh, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers who are going to have James Harden for a full season as well as uh, and uh, MVP candidate uh, from last year, Joel Embiid. Uh, and you're also going to uh, see what comes of uh, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant's relationship following all the drama that happened over the summer uh, between uh, Kevin Durant and the uh, Nets ownership, uh, partially over Kyrie, but also just partially over the the, the abject failure of uh, the Nets over the last couple years. And then lastly, I think probably maybe the most interesting thing uh, is what happens to LeBron James, uh, right? And and to the Lakers, Uh, because last year, LeBron didn't make the playoffs for, I think I want to say the second or third time in his career uh, with the Lakers. And and the the roster uh, composition was a huge uh, part of that. So, what happens with LeBron James and what happens with uh, the Lakers this year is going to be uh, really interesting because LeBron is now, I want to say, what is he, 36, 38, uh, which is pretty old for a basketball player um, and has been playing for uh, nearly 20 seasons. So it's just going to be really interesting to see what uh, LeBron does this season uh, with the Lakers, if he can like pull off another playoff uh, appearance with the Lakers, and then what happens uh, next season, which is almost assuredly going to be a response to whatever happens in the season. Yeah, and this is random, but uh, somewhat related because we're talking about the NBA. I don't know if you've seen this stuff with uh, this cat, Royce White, who was a a former uh, NBA player and now is like a reactionary uh, person running for a Congress in Minnesota against uh, Elon Omar. And I wasn't really uh, familiar with him until he started like, making the podcast rounds. I think if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was on no jumper, which is like a, a 
you know, like a, a basically like a hip hop kind of a hype beast type of a podcast slash a YouTube channel. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, some people are 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 into it uh, to to be sure. But either way, you know, he's saying things. I wanted to quote him here. Like, yeah, he has this one tweet from a few days ago where, you know, he's like, Karl Marx was an anti-Jew who resented his paternal lineage of rabbis and took up an intellectual counter movement that rejected God, which is a rejection of the natural order. He wanted to be a European woman. If you follow him or any offshoot, you're following a white woman. And I mean, that's just, that's, that's, excuse me. That's just one example of just like the completely insane, like reactionary word vomit that he engages in all the time. And, um, <clears throat> a lot of a lot of the stuff he says, like quite literally, when you put it together, it doesn't even really like make sense. It's just clearly like designed to uh, 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 appeal to, frankly, like the most rank uh, reactionary uh, elements of uh, uh, the U.S. And uh, it 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 it's just like sort of red meat, if you will, to uh, the people that he's really trying to uh, appeal to, and always throwing out you know Marxism as this kind of like a boogeyman uh, concept. And he sort of frames himself as a kind of antidote to like you know the quote unquote like SJW you know activities of someone like uh, a LeBron James. Although I think you know casting him in that way, I think is just not really accurate. But it's just sort of a weird thing to see how politics. Um, uh, play out in the place like the NBA, where certainly we've seen some, um, you know, uh, 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 discussion around like the, you know, the movement for black lives and all those sorts of things. We saw that a lot, I think a lot more, frankly, a lot more consistently from the WNBA, but they get, you know, less attention in general and certainly on the political end of things. That is uh, uh, the truth as well. And, you know, it's one of those things when you talk about a, a corporate entity that makes that much money, you know, obviously uh, the politics of it are, are definitely going to uh, come in to play. But even in uh, sort of taking a step back and sort of looking at the whole uh, the whole issue of professional sports as a whole, as we often point out on the show, I mean, ultimately this, you know, it's a ruling class venture in terms of who actually controls it and who benefits the most. I mean, there's uh, always this emphasis on a lot of the, the players, the workers who are millionaires. And yeah, a lot of them do make a lot of money, but a lot of what they make is like a drop in the bucket in terms of what these owners make and uh, what a lot of these uh, uh, different brands get in terms of that and all and, and that sort of thing, which is why, you know, the, the NIL aspect of things was so I think uh, uh, interesting in terms of college sports and things like that to where some of these young people could actually benefit some uh, from just the, the incredible profits that they, they generate from these schools. And so, you know, when we talk about professional sports, we're talking about like a major cultural export of the United States. And so something that emerges from this same capitalist system that we're speaking about, of course, I think is always going to show a lot of those same contradictions. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Josh Gomez, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow to an all-new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.